If you guys want to open up already to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verses 12 uh, to 19. Okay? Um, but do you smell it? There's no manure in the air. Because where I live in Abbotsford, that's all you smell all the time. It's nothing but farmland, and so it's nice to have fresh air. Anyway, so if you keep your passage open, look, first of all, it's my privilege and uh, pleasure to come here and preach the Word of God to you. Um, You know, last week, uh, Pastor Lee would have preached on the very first section of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as we lead over to, you know, uh, Good Friday and Easter, Easter Sunday for next week. But as we lead up to it, last week, you know, Pastor Lee had talked about that, that especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that it goes on for quite a long time, about 60 verses. So there's a lot of content and a lot of information in regards to the resurrection of Jesus and the importance of it. I did go online to check what Pastor Lee had said, so I'm going to piggyback on on. You know, in the jumping point, and he had mentioned that there's so much information, it's like a mosquito at a nudist colony. And it made everyone nervous. So, this passage this morning, in that section, verses 12 to 19, I will expand on that and say, okay, this is like a mosquito at a nudist colony, but everyone is wearing a hazmat suit. This is where Paul is going to sort of get this thing to unravel, okay? My wife and I, Laura, as we begin, uh, we are perfectly good, God-fearing parents to two small young girls. But every now and then, her and I have to destroy the truth in order to rescue our precious and delicate children. So what we do is we lie to them. So children, if you're listening, you might have to now block your ears, okay? Okay. As parents, we will lie to our children and we say things like, kids, if you lie, your nose will grow a little bit longer. Or there's moments when, you know, the kids and I, we're out in a restaurant and I'll order whatever it is, a Coke Zero or Coke, Pepsi, whatever it may be, and they'll look at it and they'll see the fizz and, you know what I mean, the, the ice, and they go, oh, daddy, we want that. But I'll tell them, no, this tastes gross. It's, it's, it's like daddy's black coffee that I drink. I say, okay, I don't want that. And then we tell them, or I would have heard as a young child, Vin, if you swallow that gum, that's going to sit in your stomach for seven years. You won't be able to poop that out. And if you did somehow miraculously poop that out, it will come out bouncing out of you. Or when the kids really act up and it gets really bad, especially in public, when they misbehave and they're crying, they're shouting, they're on the floor. You tell them, hey, if you don't act, if you stop acting up, if you behave, if you just, you, got, you better knock it up because if you don't, I'll call the police and they'll put you in jail. As parents, as we grow up, those are the things we laugh at. But those are the lies we tell our children in order to put them in their place. But if we play out the actual long-term results, if we continue like this in those types of conversations, the truth is it should make us rethink our approach. 
Because if we were to let this unravel like a ball of string and let it sort of unravel and see how it plays out, the truth is the results will be this. We know this as parents. If we continue with those lies, those lies produce fear in our children, do they not? Just fear. It's a fear-based relationship for you and I. And our kids will only behave out of purely because of fear, the fear that we have placed in them. But also, our lies to them become their lies to then their children. They will pass that on. And if you keep playing that out, the truth is in our, in our relationship with them, when they find out the truth of all the things that you had said in previous years, that none of it is, is true, then guess what? Trust itself in your relationship with them and with us is no longer as stable. They will start to second guess everything. So my question for us as we get into this text is, and it's the question that Paul wants to unravel for us, which is, can we live without the resurrection of Jesus? Or bigger question for us is, for those who confess to be followers of Jesus, can you even be Christian without the resurrection of Jesus? And so Paul uses this entire section here to, to sort of ask that question, but then also answer that question. Because some have started to question the bodily resurrection of Jesus. So let me read it for us. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 to 19, it says this. Now, if Jesus is proclaimed and raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life, only we are of all people most to be pitied. So just to remind us of last week and in the context of this passage, Okay, so Paul, starting from verse 1, starts to lay out, like he's, start, he's reminding the church in Corinth of the gospel that was preached to them. The gospel that he heard, that had been passed on to him, and now he had, he's passing it on to the church. So what he received, he's passed on, untouched to them. And the four main things he sort of mentions in the previous one, verses 1 to 11 of chapter 15 is, he mentions the cross of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the witnesses of Christ, all supported By the word of Christ, okay? So the cross of Christ, resurrection of Christ, the witnesses of Christ, all supported by the word of Christ. Then you get into verse 12, the beginning of where we're starting this morning. Starting from our reading, the apostle starts to sort of, like I said, tease out and play out what it would look like if there's no bodily resurrection, so he's basically telling his audience, okay, if that's what you want to say, let's, let's, play, let's play this out. Let's work this out. Let's see what the repercussions, what the results are. So he addresses the people and the rest of the church, especially those who have questioned about the resurrection. He wants to know, he wants to inform them, hey, does the bodily resurrection make sense? Okay. 
And if it doesn't, okay, let's play this out. Then he jumps over, the, then he continues after he addresses the people. Then he, in verse 13, he starts with the laying out of the results itself. Okay, here we go. If Jesus did not rise, what's the first domino to fall? So in verse 13, he says the first result would be that Jesus himself would still be dead. Okay, he'll still be there today. He is not alive and well and sitting on his throne and in heaven with God. Um, there's a documentary in 2007. Um, during Bible chapter, during my Bible college years, when there in 2007, when I was doing Bible college, my, the principal of the Bible college made an announcement during our chapel service where all the students would come. And in the chapel service, he gets up there and he says, there's a documentary being released and it's titled, The Lost Tomb of Jesus. Um, it's, it came out in 2007. The executive producer at the time, still is, but was James Cameron, who had released the Titanic. What a bunch of nonsense that is. Like, I already know the ending of the Titanic. Why would I watch it? But anyway... He's an executive producer and he came out, so this documentary came out at the height of when Dan's Brown book, if you've heard of it, The Da Vinci Code. So The Da Vinci Code comes out first, this documentary sort of follows suit after that, okay? So The Da Vinci Code, if you didn't remember, it was questioning whether Jesus was married and then this now, the lost tomb of Jesus claims in this documentary to have founded the tomb of Jesus, and not just the tomb of Jesus, but they found his bones. Now, our principal had brought this up because he's saying this is the claim that this documentary is making. They had found the, the tomb of Jesus and the bones of Jesus. And it was supported by a professor by the name of James Tabor, who is a biblical scholar and professor of ancient Judaism and early Christianity at the Department of Religious Studies of the University of North Carolina. So it has some weight to it. And people were questioning James Tabor, this professor of religious studies and of early Christianity. and said, this is no big deal that we found the bones of Jesus. Because we th- he's saying, because we think the, the resurrection of Jesus was just something spiritual and not bodily. But I can still remember very clearly being at that chapel service at Bible College and, our, and our, our principal was saying, guys, listen to me. If this documentary ends up being true and have all the evidence from, the evidence from the, all the DNA testing that they're going to do to you know, historical pieces of it all, he told us this all ends. He was actually telling us during the service, let's end it. Because without the bodily resurrection, none of this matters anymore. Let's end this chapel service. Let's go out there. Let's just quit. Quit ministry. Go and get regular jobs. Live up our lives. Just go out there and live. Why are you here? It doesn't matter anymore. The Apostle Paul would go as far to say in verse 14 that, look, if Jesus is not alive and well today, if he didn't bodily resurrect He would then tell us today, hey, you better stop listening to Pastor Lee's nonsense every week. What's the use of listening to all this preaching? And all the faith and trust that you put in Jesus today? Stop. It all means nothing. And you were all fools to even continue listening if there is no bodily resurrection of Jesus. Jesus. 
the way, the, the mental image I want to sort of portray to you this morning would be like this. Imagine playing the game Jenga. If you don't know the game Jenga, it's just those wooden blocks all stacked up together. But you've got to imagine that the, the, the piece at the bottom right at the end is a single piece, a single block that holds up the stack. And if you pull it at that bottom, the whole thing collapses. That's the imagery the Apostle Paul is trying to give you. Without the bodily resurrection of Jesus, it all crumbles and falls apart. So the battle, it, it had been fought during Paul's time, but also during Jesus' time in regards to the resurrection. And today, it's still being fought. So let me, put, let me remind us of what has happened historically, even leading up to where Paul is at now. Historically, there were a group called the Sadducees, Okay. And if you look up, it's not going to be up on the screen, but if you look at Mark chapter 12, verses 18 to 27, there's a, there's, there's a long dialogue between Jesus and the Sadducees. And so the Sadducees believed that there was no resurrection. There was no such thing. And so when they debate Jesus about the resurrection, they give this sort of ridiculous scenario of you know, a man being married and, you know, and, his, and he dies, but his wife doesn't bear children. And so he... you know. By the law of the land for the Jews, that woman had to marry the, the brother and so on and so on if that brother died and continues and continues. And they ask the question, well, who, you know, who's, who's she married to in the end? If she married, ends up marrying seven of the brothers, what happens at the end? And so they play out this ridiculous scenario and Jesus answered, answered them about the resurrection that there is one. Then you got the, so you got the Sadducees, and then you got the ancient Greeks. If you look at Acts chapter seventeen, verse thirty-two, it says this: "It says now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others says we will hear you again about this." So this is Paul preaching to the ancient Greeks, and if you look at that, it says that they mocked him. They didn't have a problem with a God dying on a cross. They didn't have an issue with that. Okay, a God saving his people, his created beings. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. But when it came to the resurrection, they mocked him for it. They said, no, that's ridiculous. But some consider, okay, well, we're willing to hear you out. It's interesting enough. But then also, historically, you also had the Gnostics. The Gnostics believed that um, the physical body, the, the body itself, was just a waste of time. Because it aged, it gets wrinkles, it breaks down, it gets tired. So the physical body for the Gnostics was not worth saving. Okay, But the thing that was worth saving was the mind. The mind was the thing we wanted to attain, not this, not this body. And then we get to around Paul's time, and when you look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 to 18, it says... This is, um, this is Paul speaking to a young pastor by the name of Timothy. And he says, hey, Timothy, but avoid irreverent babble. For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And the talk will spread like gangrene. Among them and Herminius and Philetus who have served, swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. 
So you've got this historical piece that sort of Jesus enters into, but then Paul enters into. There's this biblical times that, that they're, they're into now, but what about today? But some of those things have actually transferred over to our time today, even this morning. If you were to ask other faiths about the bodily resurrection of Jesus, some today would still claim today that the body was stolen by the disciples of Jesus. And so that, that argument, even though it was back then, still exists today. For some reason, that hasn't been amended. Some also believe that the, those who witnessed the over 500 witnesses that had seen the body, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, that had seen and touched and you know, shared and sat down with Jesus, that all of 500 of them were all hallucinating. But even psychologists will say, well, that doesn't make sense. Most people who hallucinate never hallucinate all at the same time and about the same thing. But some psychologists will say, you know what I mean, that this part doesn't make sense to make the claim that all 500 witnesses were hallucinating about a bodily resurrection of Jesus. And then atheists today will say, well, look, ultimately, look, there is no God anyway, so it doesn't even matter if there's a bodily, bodily resurrection or not. But it starts to unravel even more for us as a people today. There's a book called Love Thy Neighbor by Nancy Piercy. Um, I highly recommend this book. Okay, highly recommend it. Um, she says uh, lots of things, uh, it, uh, but one of the major things she, she will state in her book is this. She says, hey, think about this historically and the church and all that. Historically, the church was like the place to go uh, for all, like centuries ago, that people would go in order to find answers, right, to the, to the questions of life. People would go to church to find uh, purpose, to find meaning. Think about every major city, especially in Europe, but also here in Canada, in the US, in Australia even. If you think about small towns and all that, where were church buildings built? She states in her book, well, most church buildings were built at the center of the city. Were they not? Not on the edge, not in the country. City, the church building was built in the middle, which shows that people would come to the center, come to the church building, because that was the source of faith and hope and meaning and purpose and to get questions about life. But centuries of dominance was starting to fade away, she says in her book. She would say that around the 19th century, science now became the answer. So around the 19th century, science became this big wave, and it came into sort of the cultural mindset and into the, you know, the, the uh, cultural consciousness. So science, within the blink of an eye, in a very short period of time, had become the place to find answers. Science could now give you the answers to meaning and purpose and hope and suffering. But in her book, she now claims in the 21st century that has shifted again. She says and claims, and I, actually, and I agree with her, that in the 21st century, it has shifted over to now psychology. 
So we had moved from the church to science to psychology. She claims, rightly so, that psychology has taken over the place of science to find answers. How do we know this? She says, and I agree with her once again, that the gender movement has proved to us that. The sexual and transgender sort of movement or awakening, whatever you want to call it, has informed us that the mind, that if the mind does not match with the body, then which one wins out? According to today, the mind wins out, right? And so you can justify changing your body to suit your image and the image that you can create for yourself. So throw biology out the way. Biology can only give you two answers to that question about gender. Biology would say there is only what? Male and female. But according to psychology, no, there isn't. You can be whatever you want. So science is out the door. It almost feels like we have sort of historically come full circle. And now the body just doesn't matter anymore. But you know, when we get to sort of take a pause on that bodily stuff and where we're at today. And when you look at verse 17, Paul would say, hey, if there's no bodily resurrection then the truth is, ultimately, you and I and those who confess that Jesus is Lord and Savior, he would say, then you are still dead in your sin without a bodily resurrection. Because the previous section from verses 1 to 11, he's trying to tell you that Jesus died not in a figurative way, but in a bodily way. He was counted among the dead. He was dead. Let me put it to, uh, to, uh, to us another way. Um, let me play this fantasy out. I'm not much of a hockey guy, but I'll try. Um, but this will be a fantasy for most of us in the room. Imagine if the Vancouver Canucks won the Stanley Cup. For some, that's a realistic hope. For some, it's a complete fantasy that would never happen. Some of you are probably hoping, I hope that never happens. But if the Canucks did, you know, did win that season and won the Stanley Cup in the end, right? we're going to cheer and hopefully we'll riot as well, just for the sake of it. <laughs> but once the season sort of comes and they hold up the Stanley Cup and they celebrate and we, you know what I mean, we, whatever it is, we write or they do some type of parade down in Vancouver and we're all there, they're all on their bus, they're cheering, there's confetti everywhere and all those things. Basically what Paul is saying is this, Paul is informing us that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we are still in our sins. But the resurrection proves though that he did die on the cross and what he did on the cross counted. So basically he's saying the Stanley Cup, the cup itself proves that the, that the season was won. 
that they were the winners at the end. That everything that they had worked hard for and done this had been achieved. It is recorded for all of history. See, the bodily resurrection is the Stanley Cup for us as Christians. It proves that everything that we went through the playoffs, the regular season, we have conquered all. Jesus had conquered all. So Paul is using this sort of logic to help us work through what the implications are. What are the implications if there is no resurrection? That's why from verses 12 to 19, if you look at the wording, his wording is this constant. There's about nine no's in there. But there's this sort of negative tone as he plays it out. Okay? No bodily resurrection, no raising of the dead. You are still dead in your sins. It just says, neg- I'll play it out, I'll play it out. And it just gets worse. For Paul, it gets worse. There are a couple of things he says, but both, basically I'll sum it up for us. That if there is no resurrection, Paul would state that Christ is still dead, preaching is dead, your faith is dead, God is a liar, and you are dead as you stand. And he's slowly saying, but it's going to get worse. Because you can sort of separate yourself from those ideas. You can, you can mentally separate yourself from God being dead. Preaching is dead. Faith is dead. God is alive. You can sort of, you know, physically and mentally and emotionally separate yourself from that. But as he gets closer to the end, he starts to make it really personal for you and I. So that you can't escape emotionally and physically and mentally. And wholeheartedly. So he's getting you to think, okay, first of all, if there's no bodily resurrection of Jesus, spiritually, there's a whole bunch of implications for us as a people. He then, he will go on to get you to think that that means you can forget the humanity of Jesus. That is, that Jesus physically, you know, physical body died. Because if, no, if his physical body did not die, then his physical body did not raise, which means your physical body would not rise. Then don't even consider the virgin birth that we celebrate you know, during Christmas every year, because if he's not born as a human, he won't die as a human, and then he won't rise as a human, and neither will you. So why should we talk about the cross next week, next Friday? If he didn't bodily, his body didn't get nailed to the cross and then bodily rise. Don't even talk about that. Or the biblical account of like after Jesus' resurrection. And the, the, the gospel accounts give us these small accounts of Jesus' body that leave more question marks rather than answers when he walks through walls. And people can barely recognize him. And, and, and then later on, they kind of just eating with his disciples after his resurrection. He's eating fish at a beach. And then he gets the Thomas, the one that doubts him the most, to touch his scars. If there's no bodily resurrection, count that all out. It doesn't matter anymore. But Paul will go on to say, but then think about those who have fallen asleep. Think about all the historical, biblical figures that we love and hold dear to. Think about Noah, who was called to build an ark because God was going to send a flood to punish the earth. 
That, that story should be laughable now without the bodily resurrection, right? What a waste of time to spend all those years building an ark, saving all those animals. For what? Well, think about Moses. Moses who went back into Egypt to rescue the people of God, over a million people out of slavery, spent 40 years in the wilderness to get them into the promised land. Pointless without the bodily resurrection of Jesus. What a waste of 40 years in the wilderness dealing with people that complain all the time. Man, sounds like church ministry anyway. Or think of King David, who the Bible calls a man after God's own heart, who repented from a sexual sin, who had an affair, who killed the husband of the woman he was sleeping with. And he gets her pregnant and he pleads with God, save the child in the womb. He doesn't clean himself. He doesn't eat for many days on end to the the point where the people are so concerned about him. Pointless. Or Job. Job who lost his family, all his children, his livestock, his wealth, all that. He suffered so much. He had boils on his skin where he got you know, broken clay and was cutting the boils just to deal with the torment of the physical bodily suffering without the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Man, what an idiot. But Paul will go on to play on this and say, okay, but this hits you. If you want to separate yourself from, from, from Noah, from Moses, from King David, from Job... You've got to take this personally. If there's no bodily resurrection of Jesus, you know what this means for then you and I personally? Truth is, I think um, we as a church need to better articulate why the body, our physical body matters. Not just for life today, but also for the life to come. And the life to come, and what I mean by that is that you would have a physical body in the life to come. Not some ghost-like body, a physical body. Why does that matter for heaven? Let's think about this sort of practically in in the everyday for you and I. Think about how our culture even thinks about the body and the time to come. Our culture today, when we talk about, let's say, what do we use mostly our bodies for? Looking at ourselves, work, play, all those things, right? That's where we use our energy and our mind, our strength and whatever it is. And so we start to use language in our culture of, because today is Sunday. Guess what happens tomorrow? Monday. So that means I've got the Monday blues. And as you work through the week, what are you working for? Oh, our culture will, will inform you and I, we work for what? For the weekend. Do we not? And then when it gets to Friday, what do we say on Friday? TGIF. Thank God it's Friday. And then once you've worked your same job for about 20, 30 years, what do you say? I'm looking forward to retirement. 
everything in our minds in regards to our physical, physical bodies, the, the way our culture defines it is basically we want to just, just to get to rest, just to do nothing. So our poor feet and hands would like, you know what I mean? Not do anything. And the truth is we, we ourselves, we don't even seem to know the need of our body in the afterlife because we have been, we've sold them also on the idea of nothing but rest. We've sold them on the idea that you don't need a physical body for rest and you don't need a physical body for heaven. We have joined them in the delusion of doing nothing for now and eternity. So if that's the case, then of course the, the body doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. To take it a step further, I am more than sure that every single one of us has lost someone we love. Or someone dear to us and close to us, a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, a cousin, a niece, a nephew. If you haven't, we know it's coming. If you think about, or if you've been to a funeral of a confessing Christian, what sentence, sentences will you hear? And you still hear it at a non-Christian wedding too. I mean, a funeral as well. You will hear things like, they are in a better place now. You will hear things like, they are no longer suffering. And then you will hear things like, we will see them again soon. But in verse 18, the Apostle Paul would say, but if there's no bodily resurrection... doesn't matter. You won't see them again soon. So don't say it. That your loved ones, the ones that you hold dear, and for the hope of seeing them once again, if there's no bodily resurrection of Jesus, they are still dead. John Calvin, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, puts it this way in regards to the resurrection. He says that the resurrection of Christ is the most important article of our faith. And without it, the hope of eternal life is extinguished. It's gone. It's done. It's dead. To expand further on what Calvin is saying, he's saying without the bodily resurrection of Jesus, we of all people have no Hope. None. See, when you look at, you know, like going back to verses 17 and 18, like Paul makes a comparison between the living and the dead. He's saying the lack of a bodily resurrection not only denies one's past, our sins, but it also denies one's future, its glory. So my question for you, as he continues, why are you even here at church? If there's no bodily, bodily resurrection of Jesus, are we just here for, what, the social stuff? 
Maybe to learn some, something about Jesus? Or is this your moral good for the week? Or is it just tradition? Uh, my parents took me, I'm taking my kids, and I might as well stay here as well. But let me conclude with a couple of thoughts. Because we're just in the, t- in the passage of verses 12 to 19, because there's sort of this no resolution until afterwards. What do we do during the meantime if we're waiting and hoping for the bodily resurrection of Jesus? And how do we stay focused when it seems like the resurrection will never come? So what do we do when... We get so tired easily and we, we waver and our foc- we lose focus continuously every day, every second, every moment, every minute, hour. What do we do? In Genesis chapter 22, verses 5, it says this, Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back to you again. Let me give you a bit of context of what's happening here. Um, the story is, is that Abraham finally gets the son that he's been hoping for. He's a little over 100 years old at, a, at this time when he has his first child, his first son. And it's been his dream, his hope. It's the promise that's been out of all promises. And God visits him and says, hey, I want you to kill the child that I just gave you. Abraham doesn't complain and, and, and does it. When we get to verse 5 in that section... Um, what's interesting is some biblical, not all, but some biblical commentators would say that this is the very first reference to the resurrection. Depending on your translation, because, because in, um, in the Hebrew itself, Abraham actually tells his servants, because he brings the servants, his donkeys, his son, and him. That's all there is. And they go to the place, they travel for, for about three days, they go to the place called Moriah, They get to the place where God has called Abraham to sacrifice his son. They finally get there. He tells his servant, stay here. But in the Hebrew, he says, we're going to go over there. And then he says, "Just even though only then two of them are going, he actually responds by saying, and we will come back to you. Why does he say we when he knows he's going to kill his son and only one will return? I don't want to take too much time in explaining all that, but my main point is this. What does Abraham go to do with his son? Verse 5 tells us, we are called during that time and during the time we have here on earth before we see the bodily resurrected Christ return and claim what is rightfully his, we are called to worship. Worship him. And that's how like chapter 15 sort of concludes. When we get to right near the end. He's saying you to worship, fix your eyes on him, stay focused on him. Align your affections on him because that's what ultimately matters. That will keep us going, that will keep us focused. But what's interesting at the end of chapter 15 is that he would say it's, it's, it's not this, just this idea of worship when you come to church and sit and sing songs and, and listen to the word of God preached. He's also saying you've got to worship God with your hands and feet. We 
with your bodies, that as you worship God with your hands and feet, it reminds you that the body matters and the body counts and the bodily resurrection and return of Christ will happen for your tired and weary bodies. So worship him, not just with the mind, but also with the body. So Christian, brother and sister, during the time as we remain here on this earth, the little short time that we have, worship Christ with the mind, with the heart, with the hands, with the feet. As we wait patiently for the return of Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you, Lord God. We thank you for your death, your life, and your, what will be your bodily resurrection. And Jesus, not just that. Um, it means so much for us to even mention even your bodily ascension to when the disciples saw you go up into heaven in the clouds. So Lord Jesus, um, what a magnificent sight. But Jesus, would you help us? Because we easily forget and we easily wonder. We're prone to wonder. So Jesus, help us to continually worship you with heart, mind, body, soul, and strength. And help us to do this for your glory and for our good. Amen.